Hey everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast, and we're having an emergency episode because, well, the world is sort of falling apart. A major nuclear power is invading another country. No one around the world seems to know what to do about it, and in the United States, I don't even feel like we have much of an understanding of what's going on, which is why having someone like Professor Stephen Fish, a professor at UC Berkeley who specializes in Russia, Ukraine, and authoritarianism is, is what we need because we have to have a more nuanced, deep understanding of these issues if we're going to make good decisions together as a nation. Steve's going to tell you about how this situation unfolded and the risks it poses for everyone around the world because there is a real risk of a nuclear war that could even end the human species if enough nuclear warheads are detonated across the world. But there are things we can do to stop it. And, and Steve will give his advice and suggestions for how to do that and what you can do to help. But Steve also has a lot of other interesting ideas that I wasn't even expecting to hear about, including this concept of progressive patriotism, the idea that while defending progressive values, we have to be proud of our nation. And, and some forms of nationalism are, if not morally desirable, at least strategically and politically necessary for us to accomplish progressive change. He also has an interesting theory of bullshit. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. And describing what went wrong with Russia, he talks about how people were basically taught to lie to themselves, lie to each other, to go with the party line and say what they thought was politically convenient to survive. And he has deep concerns that on university campuses and in politics across the nation, we're going through a similar process today where people are saying what they think they have to say instead of what they actually believe because of a fear that they'll be punished in some way. And part of the reason Russia has become the state it's become today, almost a shell state and a shell country, is because everyone was afraid to say what they actually thought. But honestly, I think Steve can speak for himself. So listen to the conversation. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Um, and without further ado, here's Professor Steve Fish of the University of California at Berkeley. But I appreciate you being here, Steve. You're an expert in Ukraine and Russia and authoritarianism. And I definitely want to ask you about what the heck is going on in Ukraine, because that's on everybody's mind. But before I ask that question, I want to ask you a more general question, which is, why do wars happen in the first place? There are many different reasons for wars starting. One of them just has to do with the imperial ambitions or the, you know, the ambition of the ruler in the country that's on the attack in taking over surrounding territory. It can be for loot, it can be for glory, it can be to boost his or her uh, popularity ratings. Sometimes, though, it's just a desire to take over another country, to expand the territories of one's country. It's just a purely imperial venture. Now, in democracies, you don't see all, all that much of this anymore because most people don't want to go to wars, and so they will fight back against leaders who want to go to wars. They'll, they'll kick them out of office. And, but that's not possible in autocracies. In autocracies, whether the people like war, want the war or not, they're stuck. And in the, in the case of Russians, they're stuck with a leader whose whole vision, his career goal, is to reconquer and reincorporate into Russia all the lands that he now calls historic Russia, which covers all the lands of the former Soviet Union, plus few other countries that Russia controlled in, say, 1914, before the revolution. That would include Finland. It includes about half of Poland, including Krakow and Warsaw. And, you know, it seems like a crazy venture to us, and it actually is. But we have to keep in mind Putin's career-long goal 
has been overcoming what he sees as the humiliation of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Putin cannot imagine Russia without Ukraine any more, Wayne, than you and I can imagine the United States without the Plain States and New England. So for him, oddly enough, this is an existential thing. Hmm. He thinks that without Ukraine, Russia is not Russia. And Ukraine is central to this area he calls historic Russia. The core of historic Russia for him are Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan. If he's able to recapture those territories in his lifetime, his imperial project will be well on its way. But we have to understand, this is what drives him. Yeah. So is there is there any basis to that claim? I mean, what, one of the things we try to do in this podcast is steel man other perspectives and make sure we're really thinking hard about counterarguments so we don't get stuck in our own ideological bubble. Sure. So if, if you were trying to make the best case, is there is there any case for Putin to think that these are historical grievances and this is similar to taking away Nebraska from the United States? After all, in the United States, we all look to the Civil War and, and Lincoln as a hero for preserving right. the Union. You know, we can't allow states to secede. So, right. you know, I imagine Putin, at least, you know, at least what he says in rhetoric is that this is a similar situation. This is historical territory that belongs as part of Russia and it's these right. European powers have taken it away. Or I know he blamed, he's blamed the Soviet Union, Lenin, and some of those initial decisions the Bolsheviks made. And we'll define some of these terms right. later. But is there any basis to that? Or is that, do you think it's just rhetoric? Well, I think he believes it. He does believe he it. He does believe it. Huh. The thing is, is the question is whether you can return to the 19th century before the rise of, of nationalism in the world or in the early stages of the rise of nationalism in the 21st century. All these territories that Putin wants to take back have their own people with their own languages and their own cultures. Putin says, that's fine. The Soviet Union and the Russian Empire had that too. We can accommodate all these different cultures. Maybe you can continue to speak your languages, but you still have to be part of Russia. You know, the reason why this is so crazy is his assumption that people in these countries want to join Russia again or that they would be happy joining Russia especially after Russia, treats them like garbage for years and years and years. He's been staging cyber attacks in the Baltic states and cyber attacks against the government and businesses in Ukraine, in other surrounding territories. Of course, we know about what he's done in Western Europe. And when these tactics of intimidation haven't worked, he's tried to sweet-talk them into union with Russia, get them to join his, Europe, his Eurasian Economic Union, which supposedly would bring some benefits to them. When that doesn't work, he decides, well, if you're not going to marry me, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and so there's your choice. And the way he's spoken to Ukrainians about Ukraine recently, you don't even have a country. He won't use the word Ukraine. He talks about the regime in Kiev, which he characterizes as a fascist regime. Mm. And he creates all these preposterous excuses for invading. He says now he wants to denazify yeah. and demilitarize Ukraine. In other words, you know, take Ukraine's armed forces away, control them completely, and get rid of all those Nazis in power. I got news for you. Ukraine doesn't have too many Nazis. We've got more Nazis here right now than, than you yeah. see in Ukraine. They have no place in parliament. Uh, the president's a, Jewish, right? I mean, Zelensky The president is and the prime minister. Okay. This is a country with some historic problems with anti-Semitism, and it's the only country in the world besides Israel that has a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. Well, both the president and the prime minister. Right, and the president won against an ethnic Ukrainian 75 to 25 in the last election. 
So when Zelensky gets on, President Zelensky of Ukraine gets on TV, as he did recently, a few days ago, and he addressed the Russian people in Russian, which, by the way, is Zelensky's first language and his best language. His Ukrainian isn't, isn't as good as his Russian. And he said, how could we be fascists? This is the country that paid 8 million lives in the war against Hitler, which is more than in Russia, the, in, in Russia proper. As for me being a fascist, he said, my, you know, my grandparents suffered. I had, we lost all these family members. He also lost relatives in the Holocaust. Mm. And Russians know he's Jewish. He doesn't have to say, I'm Jewish. But to watch a Jewish man stand up and, and say these things does give the lie. And it does, in some sense, just simply ridicule Putin's claims that Ukraine is run by fascists. Yeah. So I guess the question is, you you said that you think Putin actually believes these things. Yes. So how, is he just delusional? And how did he become so powerful and successful as a political operative if he's so removed from the reality of the world? Because someone who thinks that a state led by two Jewish people is a Nazi state, someone who believes that these nations are fascist states that are you know, just waiting for Russia to come in and, and the people actually want this. When I think there have been, you know, as recently as a few years ago, national referendums on Ukraine and how much they want to integrate in Russia. I don't remember the exact details, but I know a just massive supermajority of Ukraine, people in Ukraine have said, no, we, we like things the way they are. We don't, want to, right. we don't want to become a part of Russia. Right. So do, do you think he's just delusional or do you think it's, I mean, what is going on? And I guess one question is, how does someone who seems otherwise so effective and intelligent come to these strange beliefs if they are i mean it's almost an easier explanation for me if it's if it's manipulation he doesn't believe his own bullshit but then the second question is given that i think it seems like a, a large percentage of the russian population agrees maybe not with the military action that was taken over the last couple of days but agrees of his theory of what's happening in ukraine why do all those people believe it too so why why does he believe it and how this is kind of a question for misinformation in the world, but how has he convinced the entire Russian population to believe these things too? Well, he doesn't believe that Ukraine is run by fascists. That's a that's a, a tool he uses to justify invading Ukraine and deposing its government. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really believe that. Um, he's trying to get his people to believe it because he needs some justification for this absolutely absurd imperial venture he's on, some sort of moral justification that resonates with ordinary Russians whose families went through World War II and paid dearly at the hands of fascists. So some of his disinformation he doesn't believe. The bigger picture about how the West has kind of taken over Ukraine and directed it to be hostile to Russia, he believes that. That's actually not true either. What's happened is Ukrainians wanted their own nation. They voted for their own nation. You mentioned public opinion on, on joining Russia. Last public opinion poll I saw, which is from a week or so ago, six percent of Ukrainians liked the idea of joining Russia, and ninety-five, ninety-four percent didn't. Now, if you ask, it's unheard of in polling. You don't just, see numbers like that in polling anywhere. No, I mean, in this would no in Poland, no. Oh, but, polling, not not in polling, Poland in polling. surveys in, in general. Po- in Poland, it'd be about the same, or maybe there'd only yeah. be one percent. No, no, I said like polling as right. in like a survey. You know, right. you just don't get results on any question when you ask somebody anything. Ninety-five percent is an overwhelming. It's, it's so true. 
true, Wayne. And I think you could probably ask Canadians the same question by joining the United States. You can also get about five percent of people yeah. say, "Yeah, why not?" You know, but that's about it. Ukrainians want their nation. One of the interesting things Putin has done is he's turned Ukrainians into nationalists. Yeah. Ukrainians feel about Russians the same way Canadians feel about us, or we feel about them. They can be a pain. We've got these silly stereotypes about each other, but you know, most Ukrainians don't viscerally hate the United States or its uh -huh. leaders, except Trump, of course, and, but <laughs> we all hated him, right? <laughs> and so the whole civilized world actually hated Trump, yep. but not Biden and its leaders. Uh -huh. um, so, but that's in, in recent years, that's changed. As soon as he invaded Donetsk and Luhansk and took them over using these these separatist movements yeah. in 2014 and in next Crimea, Ukrainians' opinions about Russia and about Putin, about Putin, for example, Putin's popularity rating in Ukraine was 57% in 2014. Wow. I'm sorry, 2013. In 2015, after he invaded Crimea, Putin's approval rating in Ukraine was 10%. Mm -hmm. Ukrainians' image of Russia went from 80% positive why wouldn't it be? It's a neighboring country. They have family on the other side of the border. They share a common language. Many of them do. And that that declined to something like 20%. And it stayed that low. Putin has turned Ukrainians, who might not otherwise be the least bit anti-Putin or anti-Russia, against them. Yeah. Now you have ordinary people arming themselves. They're ready for house-to-house -house battles to save their country. Some cities in East Ukraine, which really were, were not hotbeds of Ukrainian nationalism, to say the least, have become that way. Now, Putin did this to these people. Now he realizes in order to actually take these territories back, whatever little charm offensive he ever had going is over. It's going to have to be by force. He does believe his larger tale about you know, NATO being to blame for this and, and all these awful NATO machinations going on in Ukraine, most of which actually aren't true. But this is where Putin's paranoia and his kind of his view of the world as being surrounded by enemies, that Russians can only depend on each other, and that it has no friends in the world, that kind of fortress Russia mentality, as it's called in, in Russia, really is his mentality. And it's the mentality of some of his top officials who are in charge of the secret police and the military and other agencies like this. You ask also, how has he gotten Russians to believe all this stuff? Mm -hmm. I don't think he has. Mm -hmm. I don't think he has. The, the data you just cited, which says that only a small portion of Russians actually want this war. We can, you're right about that. Only about 9% want this war as, the last, as of the last poll I saw. There's one polling agency in Russia that still does good work that Putin allows to operate, and it's from that particular agency. Mm. It's called the Levada Center. Yeah. Levada Center. And they also showed in some other polls that when asked what they thought the status of Ukraine should be, that only, I think it was somewhere around a quarter of the population advocated annexing Ukraine, and everybody else said no. And it wasn't even, not even all of Ukraine. The, the, the polling question was about the little bits of Ukraine that Russia had invaded in 2014. If you start asking people about annexing all of Ukraine, you're going to have very, very low numbers on that, mm -hmm. and people will learn how costly this is. Putin's propaganda machine works 24-7, and it, it blows hard 24-7. For the last 10 years, he's been building up to this. Mm -hmm. After Crimea, he after the Crimea annexation, he characterized Ukraine as a den of fascists that had to be denazified. 
Over time, you start believing some of your own stuff. He doesn't yeah. believe that, though. But even Ukrainians who blame NATO, who say that if you wouldn't have pushed us this far, you Western powers, we wouldn't have to do this, mm-hmm. still are against the war. I was in conversation with an old friend who I knew back from the 1990s in Russia recently, and she's a, a Russian nationalist. And she said, I think it's all NATO's fault, but I'm against the war. Mm. Now, organizing against this thing in Russia doesn't require going out there with anti, anti-Putin slogans or signs. It doesn't require calling for an end to the regime. The slogan is just, no war. No war. Yeah. And that, you know, to crack down on everybody who says no war or demonstrates in the streets against the war is going to be much harder for Putin than to crack down against Navalny's groups who are calling for rule of law and democracy and the removal of Putin from power. For sure. So, so tell us who Navalny is for folks who don't know. Yeah, Navalny. Alexei Navalny has yeah. been a leader of the anti-Putin opposition movement. He favors a transition to democracy. He's a big anti-corruption fighter. He's actually like heroic dude. Like heroic, some amazing dude. stuff. Like absolutely, because he was the one who was like poisoned by a Russian spy on a plane, and then came back even though he knew they were trying to assassinate him and said. I'm going to face off with these folks who are trying to kill me. Navalny is every bit yeah. the equal of Nelson Mandela. Absolutely. It's just absolutely incredible. As you as you point out in 2020, he was poisoned with the intent to assassinate him mm-hmm. by Putin's agents. You know, Putin always pretends like, I didn't know about this. You don't take decisions like that without consulting with the boss mm-hmm. because the international repercussions were going to be huge. So Putin tries to poison him. He survives, mm-hmm. you know. Angela Merkel and others in Germany convince Putin to allow him to come to Germany for treatment. Putin assumes he's going to stay away. As you point out, as soon as he gets healthy, Navalny goes back to Russia knowing he faces life in these horrific prison camps. Mm -hmm. And now in interviews with him there now, which we can get out in little pieces of paper that that he sends out, he says, don't worry about me. Worry about yourselves. Worry about freedom in your own countries. Yeah. This is the thing that surprised me on Navalny was... After this stuff all started unfolding, he was one of the first people I looked to because I've just I've been following his story, and I, I think he has come out against the war in many ways. Oh, of course. But I think he does believe in Putin's kind of general vision that Ukraine is a part of Russia and that this is something like you know the South seceding from the Union. Is that not correct? I don't. And think- if he does believe that, then it suggests to me that there is this propaganda campaign or i don't even know if it's propaganda or intentional but there is this widespread belief in russia that's inaccurate that the ukrainian people are just kind of begging and pleading to come back into the fold you know what most russians know better than that okay. navalny knows better than that hmm. he's the kind of guy he's a russian nationalist okay um but he is and in some sense it's good for the liberals to have a real nationalist on their side we hmm. need more of that in the united states patriotic liberals yeah. no, right we can talk about that um, later if you want to. But that gives him a certain amount of credibility. But he's certainly against this war. Mm-hmm. If Ukrainians all really wanted, you know, Russians to reincorporate their country into Russia and you didn't have to fire any shots to do it, Navalny might say, sure, that's great. But he knows the conditions here. He knows that most Ukrainians don't want part of Russia and that they're going to fight Russia tooth and nail to the end and that Russia's going to be facing a years-long occupation of a people who do not want to be part of Russia and who reject Putin's vision entirely. So it's safe to say that Navalny is foursquare against this war. And you know, what we see going on here, Wayne, is this very remarkable phenomenon. And I call it the great moral clarification. Mm-hmm. You go back to the Cold War, 
know, there were kind of good guys and bad guys. The free world versus the versus uh, you know the Soviet bloc and the Chinese bloc. And it's true that Stalin and Mao committed enormous human rights abuses, far more than you saw in the West. Um, Hitler did as well, but Hitler and Stalin were opposed to each other. And then you had Western colonialism, European colonialism going on. You had the United States, then enters enters Vietnam and another kind of mistaken war. And, you know, the Soviet Union also pretended to, and these world socialist powers at least pretended to create systems with lower socioeconomic inequality, with better gender right, rights for gender equality and things like that. Well, things have changed radically, even over the last 20 years. What's happened over the last 20 years is these paragons of progressivity and world revolution have become paragons of quote-unquote traditional values, hmm. patriarchy, even misogyny in some cases, um, you know, bastions of opposition to LGBT rights, while in the West, in, in democracies all over the world, from Taiwan to South Africa to the United States, LGBT marriage has been legalized. Gay marriage has been legalized. The number of women in high positions of authority just in the last 20 years has gone up by multiples in Western democracies and in Asian and African democracies. So can I just clarify and, something? Because you said paragons of progressive governments. You meant socialism, basically, right? Is that I was, kind of yeah, what you're, the socialist, okay. so the socialist nations. The socialist pretension was that's what okay. they were doing. Now, it was always kind of a smokescreen for great mm -hmm. power nationalism, but there was something to it. I mean, the yeah. Soviet government did, you know, bring a huge number of women into the workforce after mm -hmm. it took power. Uh, inequality in education was ended. Girls and boys were schooled together. There was something to that. And yeah. when it comes to creating societies with lower socioeconomic inequalities, we now know that there was this elite that you know, flew high, lived high on the hog and everybody else lived in this kind of genteel poverty or not so genteel poverty. But there still was the pretense. Mm -hmm. And the Soviet Union did still support good causes sometimes that we didn't. For example, they came out early in favor of the ANC and Nelson Mandela hmm. in the struggle against apartheid. And the Reagan administration regarded the apartheid regime as kind of an ally against the Soviet Union, so we waffled on that. You can look back even to the early 2000s, even to the beginning of this current decade, where you've got Bush off to Iraq you know, after that disaster, and Putin and the French and German leaders on the other side saying, no, this is awful. It breaks international norms. So here again, they're right and we're wrong on a particular issue, right? doesn't mean their societies were more just. It just means that they were – these days – over the last 50, you know, 10 or 15 years, there's no even there's no moral ambiguity here either. The West, there's no more Iraqs going on. Western powers might do some, you know, obnoxious things in other countries, but for the most part, you know, colonialism is dead. The United States is is now isn't off to any new imperial ventures of conquest, and hasn't been since the Iraq War ended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want to defend a world, a liberal international order, where might does not make right, yeah. where you've got these norms that prevent great powers from just swallowing up neighbors to glorify themselves and because they can. So we're standing for all the right things internationally. In terms of our domestic politics, like I said, we're making leaps and bounds in all the areas that progressives care about. Whereas in Russia, Putin just decriminalized domestic violence against women. Mm -hmm. That's part of his 
pro-traditional values appeal. He's trying to become the anti-woke capital of the world. So he does that. He passes a law that stigmatizes LGBT people, which is having the effect of unleashing violence and intimidation of LGBT people all over Russia. All the progressive things that we hold dear in the West among progressives, whether it be progress on on race and ethnic relations, progress on LGBT rights, women's rights, women's right to actually make it to the top of power, we've been doing very well on. And sometimes we liberals forget to pause and celebrate our our accomplishments. Um, In autocracies, you see nothing of the sort. Yeah. Recently, I've actually done something interesting. That, that Can you actually define that term for a second for people who don't know what autocracy means? I'm, sure, autocracy. Because you're political scientists. A lot of folks are just, sure, you know. Sure, it's autocracy in the strict definition is rule by one. Rule by, by a person who is not accountable. That can be, a, that can be it's typically a dictator. could also be a, a political party. But typically in an autocracy, you've got kind of one guy at the top who's yeah. the unquestioned leader. And these are, you know, these are the closed systems we oftentimes also call authoritarian systems that don't have free elections, that don't have full access, you know, free access to information. People can't access information easily. The press is suppressed. Associational rights are suppressed. Those are autocracies. Then the democracies are where you have free elections. Mm-hmm. The losers leave after they after they lose an election, which tells us about about Donald Trump and his people. They are not Democrats with a small d. They are Putin wannabes, would-be autocrats. Mm-hmm. And you have autocrats like Xi Jinping in China where it's a full autocracy. And what we see now with this, with this battle is all the democracies or Democrats in the world, whatever country they live in, uniting behind stopping this invasion. We're all on the same side. And it's noteworthy that many of the new faces of you know, not only the West, but of world democracy, are young and female. Mm-hmm. Saw so a meeting the other day of, of Great Britain's uh, foreign minister, mm-hmm. Liz Truss, of the foreign minister of Germany, uh, Annalena Baerbock, of the president uh, of the prime ministers of Lithuania and Estonia, mm-hmm. all meeting together. You know what? These are all, these are all women in their 40s. Yeah. Now, this is not possible in autocracies. If you look at Putin's cabinet, his security council, his inner circle, same thing with Xi Jinping, same thing with the other players on their side, you're going to see no women in any, any positions of power. Here, that's possible. And so democracies have been doing something right. We're kind of on the right side here. Look at who's lining up with who, mm-hmm. Wayne. Look at who's lining up with whom. So on the one side, you have, you know, the, the government of the United States, which is run by a, a real Democrat, meaning a small d Democrat right now, the governments, all these European powers, all these European democracies, most Latin American governments, Taiwan and Japan and Korea, all the governments of democratic leaders of democratic governments in East Asia, lining up on one side against this thing. And who's lined up with Putin? Here we see a absolute clarification of who his allies are. First of all, Xi Jinping, the dictator of China, mm-hmm. has offered to kind of finance the operation and cushion the blow to the extent that it can. And then you've got Putin's wannabes and, and, and you know, those who, who adore Putin. You've got Trump, mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson, 
Mike Pompeo, or former Trump's former Secretary of State, the you know, little despot of Hungary, which has turned a European country that's a member of NATO back to autoc something like autocracy in Hungary. Victor Orban is his name. You've got scary guy, scary guy, mm -hmm. and Tucker Carlson loves him. He's he's off to Budapest to mm -hmm. to broadcast another week of of shows from Hungary because he thinks Hungary's a great example for the United States, yeah. right? We can talk about that later if you want. But needless to say, that's nobody's that's nobody's goal but but Trump's that kind of vision. You've got the um the president of of, Hung of Brazil, a democratic country, yeah. but the president Bolsonaro is his name. He's a he's a Trump wannabe who calls himself the Trump of the tropics. He's another leader like Orbán's, like Hungary's Orbán, who flew off to Moscow to express solidarity and didn't stop in Kiev on the way back, and now refused to criticize, uh, to criticize Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Who are the other characters on this side? Yeah. The junta in Burma, these 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 the killers in this military who've taken power back in a military coup recently and who are despised by almost 100% of the Burmese population. The torture regime in Syria of Bashar Assad, mm -hmm. Maduro's regime, the regime that lives on hunger and corruption and grinding the faces of its people in poverty yeah. in Venezuela, that's Putin's team. Yeah. So when you really see it now, there's not much moral ambiguity left. It's kind of, for lack of a better term, good guys versus bad, bad guys. guys. Yeah. No. So there, it's rare that there are those situations in the world. The world is it often is very rare. nuanced and complicated. And actually, I, it is. as a general matter, I think, especially with domestic politics, there should be more nuance and more embracing of scales of gray. But I, this could be one of those situations that I think you're making a very good argument. One, one question. I want to ask you more about that because we talked before this briefly about how you think progressives have to get on, on, on the bandwagon of intervention, that we have to understand there are times where we actually have to use force even to, to stop someone from doing really awful. Right. And you even compared this to like a World War II scenario. But before we ask that question about what we should be doing about this, you named all these countries at autocracies. And um, I'm going to actually push back a little. I mean, you might know China more than I do. I'm sure you do, actually, as a political scientist. I have personal experiences in China. And you know, my family was actually kicked out of China in 1949. My family had to flee to, to Taiwan. And half of them were left behind. And we didn't see them for 40 years. So it was like very, very traumatic experience for us. But I would say China is more of an oligopoly and not an autocracy unlike i think you might be right i'm sure you know russia much better than i do but I'd, I'd be interested in hearing why you think china is an example of autocracy but to the extent these are autocracies countries that are ruled by one person how the heck does that even happen because you know i think a lot of us have these intuitive experiences of organizations and groups and it's really hard to get people to work together you know even like two people in a relationship it's like where are we going to go to dinner i mean it's it's hard for any one person to call the shots because there's pushback with the other person and one person says no i don't want to go to i don't want to go to to the you know the salad restaurant i want to go to the burger restaurant whatever it is so i guess i mean from a from a layman's perspective explain how do these autocracies even develop and why don't folks even other powerful folks in russia say hey you know what this isn't that cool i don't i don't like the idea that this one person controls everything um so just explain that. I mean, what, you know, what caused you're, this? You know, you're onto something important here, Wayne, because we often thought, at least until the dawn of the 20th century, that rule by a single person or a system in which, you know, a single person really calls most of the shots was old-fashioned. We'd kind of evolved past that. China actually was a good example of this. China, as you point out, 
it, in the past, mm-hmm. it was more of an oligopoly. It was ruled by a communist party apparatus. You had a handful of guys at the top, but there was there, were, there was discussion among them. There was disagreement. You had little power struggles, and China didn't. China always had a paramount ruler, but that paramount ruler didn't have the kind of power Xi Jinping does. I remember I spent China spent time in China in 2010, 2011, and it was it was much more open then than it yeah. is now, and it was much more open during the during the period of. of uh, than it was during the period of Mao Zedong, which mm-hmm. ended in with his death in 1976. Deng Xiaoping comes to power in 1978. He, he opens up the economy. He slowly, the regime loo- loosens up on cultural restrictions. Beijing, when I was there, had this f- flourishing artistic life. Mm-hmm. They do to some extent now, but since Xi Jinping came over, came to power in 2013, he decided, and some of his people decided, that the party needs a not just a first among equals, but a kind of master. Mm. So so-called Xi Jinping thought, which is basically the thought of some mediocre bureaucrat that doesn't really have much to say, became written into Chinese textbooks, written into the Constitution. His name was put into the Constitution. He has been trying ever since he got to power to replace the single-party rule, which was something of an oligopoly, you could say, um, or an oligarchy uh, with single party rule. Mm-hmm. How can he do that? Well, you know, this takes a master of factional manipulation. Somebody who can get all the elites to, to decide that they're better off with him than with a more collective leadership. Mm-hmm. And, requ- and to some extent, convincing a lot of the people of that as well. Russia has always been ruled almost all of its history by a single figure. Of course, he or she didn't really control everything in practice, but there was a single figure who was more than just a figurehead. Stalin really made all the big decisions in the Soviet Union. Putin does in, in Russia right now. He controls pretty much everything. He controls all the big businesses. He controls all government agencies, the military. Everything is his. And part of the way he's been able to do that is to convince people and convince fellow elites that they're better off on a system that has a real commander who can make decisions quickly and who's got Russia's interests in mind and isn't just interested in his own profit or his next job. Xi Jinping has been trying to make that happen in China with some success for a while, and he looks to Putin as an example of a guy who took a single-party dominant system, the Soviet Union, which was ruled by the Communist Party. Then they had that little democratic interregnum in the 90s. But Putin's now trying to take this formerly Communist Party-headed system and turn it into a single-man dictatorship. And that's what Xi Jinping likes to do. That's part of what Xi Jinping likes about Putin. He's an example of how to do that. I am still convinced that single you know, rule by a single person or one guy holds you know, almost all of the cards on big decisions is a historical atavism. Mm. This is not a stable regime. What when, do you mean by that, atavism? Can you just define that term? You know, I just mean it's a, it's a kind of relic of the past that's going mm. to fail in part because it creates such political instability. China had a system set up until Xi Jinping came to power that provided for leadership succession. There was this norm in place that you could, that the top gun got to serve for five years with a possible renewable five-year term. And the elites mm-hmm. were all on board with this. Xi Jinping has completely got, his has trashed that rule and is now setting himself up to be leader for life. For life yeah. 
Right. Which Putin did the same because there Putin like constitutional was it constitutional restrictions on him con- continuing his presidency, and then he just kind of switched to becoming prime minister, <laughs> appointed a puppet president. Is that what happened? That's what happened. Yeah. And when he came to power in two thousand in the year two thousand, there was a two term limit on the president. Yeah. After a second term. He said, I'm obeying the Constitution, and so he basically rigged the election for his favorite, and he became prime minister, and all the power moved to the prime minister's office in Russia. Then he came back in 2012 after the Constitution was interpreted to to say that you just can't have two terms in succession. You can bow out. He serves a couple more terms, and they're lengthened terms. Now they're six years yeah. instead of four years. And then last, and then last year, the Constitution is changed so he can be in power for two more six-year terms. He's going to be in his early 80s by then. And believe me, if he's still on, mm-hmm. he's still in power then, which I don't think he will be, they'll change the Constitution again. So it really is all about this one guy. Yes, that, examples like that, this is a good example for us to dive a little deeper into and understanding why conflicts like this occur and one entire nation can suddenly decide to invade another nation. To me, I see an example like that. And my thought is, everybody must think this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, and, and there has to be, it, it can't be that he's just successfully persuaded everyone that this is, it's certainly not the legal approach because it, it's, it's clearly a violation of the constitution. I can't imagine any intelligent person in Russia thinking, Oh, this is all fine. This is all kosher with the constitution we've drafted. But even the moral argument, I mean, you were saying earlier that what he's done is persuaded the elites. This is good for you. It's good for us. It's hard for me to even understand that. Um, Because if you did believe that, you'd think more people would come out in good faith, say, yeah, we changed it and here are the reasons why. Right? It's just, you're generally transparent when you think there's actually a a legitimate good faith moral or policy argument for what you're doing. you kind of pretend it didn't happen when you know what you're saying is bullshit. And one example that's concretely in the context of Ukraine is, did you watch this video of Putin lecturing his spy director? Yes, I did. That that video is so, I mean, honestly, it's eerie and creepy, but it's also kind of hilarious. It is funny. Because it just seems like this conversation is not real. I mean, it, it, first of all, it, it almost feels like Putin is trolling him, you know, because he's like making fun of him and saying things like, you know, well, speak speak more clearly. I don't understand what you're saying. And and he says, for example, oh, I will support this. And he says, will you support this or do you support this? And just and he's you could see almost like a smirk on his face, which makes it, it almost feels like he's trolling the entire nation and the entire world and this entire conflict is trolling. But I see that interaction, and to me, it suggests there is no trust even among the elites in Russia, that this is not something where any of them have actually been persuaded, and it's all kind of a house of cards that at any moment could fall apart. Is is Do you think that's not a fair characterization? Am I overgeneralizing from this one interaction? Um, or, or or do you think that the, this is kind of an exception and that there actually is more widespread buy-in to what Putin is trying to do with Ukraine or just more generally with the amount of power he has? Look, Putin came to office after a really chaotic 1990s when you had these oligarch wars and the Yeltsin government never really established itself and the state as a sovereign power. It had these completely profit-driven oligarchs really manipulating the government, you know, like like a puppet in some ways. Russia lost its sovereign. Yeltsin's intentions were good, but Russians came to associate democracy with 
a kind of war among these these oligarchs who are making their money, you know, through very nefarious means and basically ripping off old communist era state property. Yeah. When Putin came to and office, fucking ordinary people, and and, the and fucking ordinary people yeah, in the meantime. That's right. Yeah. And when in- income inequality went massively up, and I. I actually recently looked at lifespans in Russia, and right after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, we they had all these promises of, oh, you're going to have Nikes now in jeans, but instead, you know, I think lifespans dropped by like 20 years or some ridiculous number, in in an otherwise modern country. That's right, and you know, the main reason for that, of course, was that the Stalinist economic model, which the Soviet, which Russians had lived on ever since the Stalin period, had just completely broken down, and they didn't have a market system yet to replace it. And it left, you know, a fertile field for all this exploitation of these people who had never experienced a market economy, didn't know how to do business, on the part of the handful of people who did know to do, did know how to do business and who had good international connections. Most of them, old Communist Party leaders, or in the case of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who became a celebrated dissident when his business was taken over by Putin in, in 2002. Uh, these are p- people with a lot of business savvy who could actually, you know, make some money. But they often did it, as you suggest, in ways that were not very popular with ordinary people. When Putin came to power, these oligarchs were all in this big power struggle over who was going to control whom. And at some point, they too wanted some order. They wanted some guarantees that they would not be raided by their oligarch oligarchical. Uh, competitors. Putin came to office. He called all the oligarchs together. In fact, we know when he did it. It was at a barbecue. He held it at a presidential residence shortly after he came to power in 2000. And he said, look, guys, I'm not going to revisit these shady privatizations of the 1990s that gave you guys huge chunks of the ground, crown jewels of our economy. Here's the trade-off. You can't be involved in politics anymore. You get out. You can't finance alternative parties, parties that are, you know, alternatives to my party. I don't want any guff from you in politics. I don't want to hear about your political ambitions. You keep your mouth shut about that, and I'll let you keep your fortunes. Mm -hmm. And most of the oligarchs thought, great, we don't care that much about politics as long as our pile is, is protected. And Putin provided protection for their piles, and he started making some of his own cronies rich, the guys from St. Petersburg days, and he set up a system where he regularized competition among the oligarchs. Now they've got a sovereign. They've got a guy who actually nego- negotiates deals between these oligarchs, and he's he's really got power. He can discipline them. And most rich people in Russia welcome that. What's more, the economy was in a, was in a mess in the 1990s. You even had some uh, provincial governors trying to set up trade tariffs tariffs on trade between their provinces in order to you know, gain some corrupt gains. Putin got rid of that. He unified the national market. He made Russia a better place to do business. And so the business community in Russia, including a lot of the very rich, breathed a sigh of relief. And Putin's been able to keep that system together yeah. for a long time now. And most of Russia's elite who are cut in on his deals, at least. And he's very good to his friends, and he hates to use to make enemies he doesn't have to make. That's changing now. But he's done a good job of kind of being the guy who balances off and is the final word in disputes among these guys. That's part of why that kind of oligarchy was accepted. What's more, in Russian history, typically, especially during periods where Russia's ascendant and it's doing well and it's rising in the world, you have had an oligarch a personal sovereign who's been able to knock the heads together of all the other powers in society and provide a kind of sovereign power who's who's apart from the 
profit-seeking oligarchs and who ideally has national interests in mind. And an interesting thing about Putin, and one of the reasons why he's still so respected by his oligarchs and by the Russian people is he is rightly viewed as someone who has values beyond his own enrichment. Putin wants to be the richest guy in the world as a symbol of his power, as a war chest he can use against any oligarchs who might want to challenge him. But Putin's not just in it for the money. We have to realize he has an ideal interest too. And it's Russia's clout and greatness in the world and the widening of the Russian empire back to the point where he thinks real Russia is there. He's passionately dedicated to that. Most of his oligarchs and officials are just interested in their own piles and their own power. Putin has that great goal that also has raised his prestige and status with ordinary Russians as well. He also, let's face it, he was the guy that took a wrecked Russia and you know, help people feel proud of their country again. When I was there in the 1990s, most Russians wanted to just move abroad. Mm-hmm. Now Putin has helped, and for a while he increased public morale. But that was then and this is now. Now he's actually tearing down morale and he's undermining Russia's position in the world. Look, if you alienate the whole Western world and democracies around the world, these are powerful countries. Mm-hmm. And you have to rely on China the only, you know, the only one of his allies that has any power at all in this world, it's not you know, the Syrian kleptocracy or the Venezuelan kleptocracy or Kim Jong-un. Yeah. They're all on his side, but it's the Chinese. But by alienating everybody else, Putin is, in da- is creating a danger that Russia becomes a vassal of China. Mm-hmm. It becomes a dependent power in China. That is something that most Russian elites through the centuries have always wanted to avoid. They've always wanted a balance between East and West. Putin could be upsetting that balance in a way that ends up degrading Russia's international status, yeah. right? So now he's, he's making mistakes that threaten all the gains that he's made in Russian people's eyes. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, so, I mean, th- this is one of my big questions for you is, and, and helping everybody understand why this is happening. And you just said that the oligarchs struck this deal with Putin and said, you know, we'll stay out of politics, give us our billions, which there's still a question of, well, why are ordinary people going along with this? And it's a hard question that has <laughs> a lot of difficult let questions me give, and answers. Let, let, me, me, let me just ask sure. you this. I think I read that the stock market in Russia dropped by one third. And I were reading about the swift baking system, which is this, you know, I actually don't fully understand, but I know it's just this basic tool that all banks and, and businesses need to engage in financial transactions with each other. That might actually be kind of cut off for, for not just Putin and his cronies, but businesses in Russia will suffer immensely from right. this. So why is it that you don't see more institutional pressure within Russia to stop these sorts of wars just from an economic self-interest perspective? Why don't these oligarchs come forward? Or is there some long-term game in their head that this is actually going to benefit us financially? You know, the oligarchs, as you point out, are losing money hand over fist right now with this with the Moscow Stock Exchange Mm -hmm. declining, losing a third of its value, which it has over the last month. In fact, as of yesterday, it lost 40 percent of its value. Maybe it bounced back a little bit. This is costing Putin's billionaires billions. Yeah. You're talking about people, let's take one of his chief money launderers, this fellow Gennady Timchenko, who lives in palaces in Switzerland, hasn't been in Russia in years, has mm. Finnish citizenship and all these other citizenships in case he falls out with Putin. But Putin trusts him. He's used him to launder his money and help hide his assets for many for many years. Well, old Timchenko, whose assets amounted two weeks ago to something in the order of $25 billion dollars, 
have now fallen to $16 billion. So that poor guy has to get by in $16 billion. Poor Imagine guy. that. <laughs> but for a guy who cares about his pile more than anything yeah. else, to watch it diminish by sure. 40% or 30% in a couple of weeks, he's got to start wondering. First of all, this is all due to Putin's nonsense in Ukraine. Having represented a lot of large corporations and extremely wealthy people, it is kind of shocking (laughs) how much extraordinarily wealthy people care a lot about their wealth when it doesn't really affect their life that much. Like if you have 25 billion or 16 billion, you're still filthy rich. You don't know what to do with your money. So, but but continue. I but just these guys, that. that's it's, so it's kind of true. It's amazing how much it matters. It's them. so true. Yeah. And these guys check the Forbes list every day yeah. to see where they stand. Zinchenko's no longer the sixth richest man in the world. Now he's number 14 or whatever. That oh, stuff matters to these poor guys. Guy. That stuff matters. And the idea of losing still more of their money already has some of them potentially thinking. What good's the boss doing us these days? We've got our own estates and our own independence. Most of us live in the West. And if we're going to be treated as pariahs in the West, if we won't be able to send our kids to Swiss and British prep schools anymore, um, then things the calculus starts changing and some of the oligarchs might start having some conversations about whether the boss is still the guy to guard our fortunes. We should be playing on that. The United States, if it's going to be effective, has to really affect the basis of Putin's power. That doesn't mean send in CIA operatives into Moscow to do a coup. We can't do that if even if we wanted to and shouldn't do it. We don't need to do it. All we have to do is, with economic measures and with relentless support for the Ukrainian resistance, we can make life uh, hard for Putin's inner circle and his oligarchs in just financial terms. What to do here? We have to go much further than these sanctions on Putin himself and Lavrov, the foreign minister. We have to go much further than sanctions on several big Russian banks. Those sanctions are meaningful. But if we really want to take a bite out of Putin's power and threaten him seriously, Russia has to be excluded from the SWIFT system of international of payments that you just mentioned. If you're excluded from that system, it's hard to move money around at all. Now, China's trying to figure out a kind of alternative. But if you're excluded from that system these days, you, it's just hard to do business with the yeah. world. You can't even do money transfers, right? We use a 11 thousand financial institutions around the world use it. Almost everybody who's got any money uses it. If Russia is excluded from that system, the economy will probably go into a tailspin. Mm -hmm. Putin's oligarchs will really question whether they want to stay loyal to him. But here's the rub, Wayne, is that that would require sacrifice from us. Mm -hmm. Putin thinks of the West and he thinks of Biden, he thinks of these European leaders as soft, unpatriotic. Not anti-patriotic, but not willing to sacrifice a dime mm-hmm. in order to help Ukraine. The question is now whether he's going to be right about that or not. If, so say more about that. What sacrifice would we have to take if we decided to ban Russia from the Swiss system? Well, Germany gets 40% of its gas hmm. from Russia. And the you know natural gas heats their homes and fuels their industry. And, you know, Russia provides Europe with 25% of its oil. Hmm. If you kick Russia out of the SWIFT system, Russia can't, Germany can't pay Russia for that, for that gas anymore. And Putin's already said, he knows how big a deal the SWIFT exclusion would be. So he Mm -hmm. said, if you kick us out of the SWIFT system, exclude Russia from it, we will immediately stop the flow of gas and oil to Europe. Hmm. What this means is much higher prices for gas and oil in Europe. It means some rationing. It means 
It's going to hurt the bottom lines and pocketbooks of a few of, of some German corporations, and it's going to cause discomfort for, for German consumers. Now, here's the thing. That might sound like a big deal, but in the bigger picture, it is not. Mm. To actually you know, give up some of these comforts, probably temporarily, to endure rationing, to endure maybe even your apartment getting a little bit cool at night because there's got to be some cutbacks. We're already over the worst of winter. This is not going to, nobody's going to die over this. For the United States to intervene and ship more of our natural gas, we're an, we're an exporter of natural gas to Europe, to actually suck it up and pay the cost to this will prove Putin wrong, will prove to him that preserving a post-war order in the world where might doesn't make right, where you can't just gobble up your neighbors, where authoritarian, let's face it, maniacs like him don't run the show. Our long-term interest in that, achieving that end, is far greater than our short-term interest in not having higher gas prices. Yeah. Putin's, Putin is betting that we're soft, we don't care that much about, about Ukraine, and we're going to buckle on this. If the West shows we're willing to exclude Russia from the SWIFT system and pay the consequences ourselves, that will change everything. Yeah. So I guess my question for you is, if you look at sanctions, I mean, for, for I think most people in the United States, and certainly people have been born in the last 20 to 30 years, the history of sanctions doesn't sound that good. You look at sanctions in Iran, for example, or um, you know what, what Israel has been doing in Palestine to prevent terrorism. Typically, what seems to happen is just, especially in autocracies, the authoritarian leader just turns around and blames their own people suffering on this foreign adversary. Look at the terrible thing the United States is doing to us. And you know, I mean, we've said for years, oh, yeah, the people will turn. And there have been a few moments in Iran, for example, where people, like the Green Revolution, for a few months at least, uh, had some momentum. But over the long term, it hasn't had much of an impact. Why do we think that wouldn't happen here? It, it, there's no doubt that Putin will present these sanctions to his people. And he's already doing that with the sanctions we've imposed. He did it even before we started imposing sanctions. Yeah. It's just an effort to as he says, undermine Russian development. It's not really about trying to protect Ukraine, he says. It's, it's supposed to undermine Russian development. Now, a smart Western response, which I haven't heard from Biden yet, is, wait a minute, Putin's economic model is all about enriching himself and his cronies and controlling the country politically. So he's, under, he's undertaken no reforms, the Chinese style, that would actually create a new entrepreneurial class, a high-tech class that will stay in Russia and produce. Putin's program has been anti-developmental, and if you want to talk about Russian development's biggest enemy, you have to start with Putin. Mm -hmm. We have no interest in undermining Russia's development. It would just create a bigger market for us, a place that we could actually um, you know, do, do more business with. We profit from China's prosperity. Our prosperity is tied to theirs and theirs to ours. But Putin, of course, will cast this as just a way to keep Russia down. Mm -hmm. How, how much Russians will believe that over time as the body bags are coming in is not entirely clear because everybody knows that these, you know, these sanctions weren't imposed before the invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What's more, they're going to be much more painful than the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Iran or on Iraq before the, before the, uh, the first Gulf War, which is to say that they would really, really 
potentially send the whole economy into a tailspin. So they're likely to be more effective simply because they're they're more serious. They're going to affect more of the Russian economy than these sanctions that we applied in other cases, mm. including the sanctions we imposed after Crimea. Putin can ride that stuff out. Yeah. But when you exclude Russia from the SWIFT system of payments, <laughs> you just can't do business and anymore. And Crimea, just to, so folks understand what that was, that was a prior incursion invasion. Yeah, 2014. Yeah, 2014, Russia basically annexed part of Ukraine. And that's also the world sort of just stood by and said, Exactly, and that that's sucks. and that's that's exactly what happened. And what's more than that, that's when he in, when he invaded or he, his proxies invaded and created this fall this fake civil war in Donetsk and Luhansk, these big cities in the southeast of Ukraine. And the, the what did the world do to that? There were some sanctions on some oligarchs and businesses, but that's something that's e that's easy for him to ride out. And think about it, Wayne. Sometimes we think Putin is crazy to think he can get away with this. But when is he lost? Mm -hmm. Putin over the last ten years has systematically polluted social media in the West. Our social media, look at Facebook, millions of, of posts by these fake companies, these fake I don't know bots and these in these in these trolls mm -hmm. who are not really that one was called like uh, the patriotic American another one is supposedly a black lives matter site and they're being done by a troll factory in St Petersburg owned by one of Putin's cronies is called the Internet Research Agency yeah. and its goal has been to demoralize Americans to make us quit believing in our own democracy to divide a wedge between people of color and white people to stoke white nationalism he's done the same thing in Europe and and then he invades Crimea and annexes part of uh, annexes part of Ukraine and what has he paid for all this we don't even cyber attack him back he probably tipped an election in the United States mm -hmm. toward a candidate who is a sycophant of his, someone who worships him and who discredits democracy in America and around the world. And what price did he pay for that? Yeah. Another set of sanctions designed, which was absolutely nothing. Putin so far has gotten away with murder. It's no exaggeration to say this guy has bent the arc of 21st century toward injustice, injustice, mm -hmm. right? And he's hardly ever paid a price. Yeah. Well, if he pays a price now, then he's going to actually see that maybe there's some cost to doing this kind of stuff. One of the reasons, though, he's he's engaging in what looks like this bizarre adventure is he's gotten away with everything else. Why not give this a try? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason I, I see when I'm reading about this situation and other prior conflicts with Putin, whether it's election interference or Crimea, there's been a lot of reticence, I think, to push harder is because Russia is a nuclear state. And... What, I, I've been surprised by how little discussion there has been of the potential for nuclear war. Uh, I think it's picked up a little bit because I think Putin a couple of days ago actually vaguely referenced the fact that Russia is a nuclear state and, mm -hmm. you know, anyone who opposes us will pay consequences like they've never seen before in history. And you could take that as, oh, he's just bluffing. But then you realize, I mean, the country has, what, 1,600 warheads or something like that. That literally would be enough to cause nuclear winter and, and destroy the entire planet potentially. So I guess my question for you is, given how dangerous the state is, and it's, it's very different, like Iraq, Afghanistan, these other places where we've intervened or imposed sanctions don't have that sort of power. I mean, isn't there a real argument that we should be pulling back a little bit, given how dangerous this is and how 
I think even Obama a few years ago said, you know, Ukraine really is in our national interest. It's it's this faraway country and, and it's an awful situation. But the reality is we have limited ability to do anything about this. And the risks of messing this up are bad for the entire planet. I mean, and, what do you say to that? And argument? look at what they got us. Look at what that got us. What do you mean by that? I mean, it, it's Obama's statements and Obama backing away from his red line on Syria. He mm -hmm. said that if the Syrian regime used chemical weapons against its own people, that he that would be a red line. Mm -hmm. The U.S. would take military action. And instead of taking the action, Obama was quite a dove. He didn't want more wars. He viewed his presidencies about getting out of Iraq and getting out of Afghanistan, which Biden then finished the process of mm -hmm. in Afghanistan only recently. Obama saying that about Ukraine was was definitely something that made Putin feel like this can be taken back. He's announcing it's not a big deal to us. I see this. I see the logic of your argument that you don't want to push Putin too far because yeah. he can blow up the world. But here's the thing: when you're dealing with people like Putin, they respect only strength. And if he succeeds in Ukraine, you better believe that pressure on NATO allies is going to come next. On Estonia, a very vulnerable country, there are very few NATO troops there. By NATO's treaty, Article 5 of NATO's treaty, all countries in NATO are obliged to treat an attack on any other member of NATO like an attack on their own territory. So the United States is treaty-bound. If Putin moves a few troops across the border into Estonia or Latvia, yeah. which would be a piece of cake for him to do, the United States is obligated obliged to, to act, yeah. obligated to even use nuclear weapons if necessary. That's what we might do if they attack the United States. So if you don't stand up to Putin in Ukraine right now, immediately we will be in a nuclear confrontation because he's going to start screwing around with NATO allies. He's going to start pressuring them, and he's probably going to move a few troops into them and see how we respond. At that point, if we don't respond with overwhelming force, the entire Western alliance's credibility, the credibility of the American nuclear umbrella over Europe, which has kept the peace in Europe for 75 years, where we say we threaten the use of nuclear weapons if anybody invades these countries, the credibility of those promises is gone because Putin will have actually moved into a NATO country and we won't have responded with full force. That's Putin's hope. And his ultimate hope here is not just taking back Ukraine, but it's undermining the Western alliance, yeah. undermining Europe's commitment to the United States and vice versa. So it might seem paradoxical here, it might seem kind of old fashioned, right? You meet, you meet strength with strength. And, but Unfortunately here, the, the typical kind of progressive diplomatic approach, when you're dealing with somebody like Putin, right, mm -hmm. the logic of it doesn't, doesn't hold because Putin's only going to stop when he meets resistance. The only thing that's going to keep him from messing with NATO states, who we are treaty bound to, to protect with our own nukes if we need to, the only way that he'll be prevented from that is if he pays an extraordinarily, extraordinarily high price for his venture in Ukraine and sees that, wow, if I screw around with a NATO state, it'll be even worse than this. How realistic do you think it is that we could face nuclear war? I mean, do you think we're at a point? I remember back when I was growing up, there was like a clock. I think it was, was it the Union right. of Concerned Scientists? I don't remember which organization that had a, a doomsday clock. And I think they did away with that, maybe after the Berlin Wall fell. But do you, do you think that people in the United States should be genuinely concerned that nuclear war could be the inadvertent result of this conflict spiraling out of control if we don't take the right approach? Or do you think that's, ah, oh, that's just... We're still very remote, and we shouldn't be too concerned about that. Because, yeah, please. I think if 
Putin gets away with Ukraine, mm-hmm. which I don't think he'll do, because I, I am confident that? we're going to stand up the way we need to, at least 51% of me hopes for that. Mm-hmm. I'm, def- I'm 100% confident the Ukrainians are patriots. They're going to fight house to whore- house if they need to to save their country. Oh, you're right about that. I've seen some images of just even extremely wealthy, privileged people. I've been shocked by, you know, Alex Len, who's an NBA player, like the fifth pick in the first round a few years ago in the NBA draft, or Vitaly Klitschenko, the former heavyweight champ. Who's, who's the mayor of Kiev. Yeah, and his brother, both of them are multimillionaires. They right. could be doing any, anything with their lives. They're they out on to. the front lines right now. I know, now. they're like grabbing machine guys. Right. And, say, and these are big guy. macho guys, these exactly. Are, they're big macho guys, but right. it's, it's, they're and also very privileged. And exactly. They, if they, wanted they don't to, have they to do this. Anyway. That's and right. And so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of stunning to me how many people in very privileged situation don't seem to have any, I mean, Klitschenko is maybe an exception because he was mayor of Kiev, but like Alex Len, I, I looked at his Twitter and I was like, you right. don't have any background in politics at all. I've never seen you tweet about politics or say anything about politics. And, you know, you read his statement, it sounds like he's ready to fly back there and die. Absolutely. You know, so it's like, it's such a weird situation. Well, see. you know, nationalism is a strong force. And and I'm making a distinction here between yeah. ethno-nationalism, the bad stuff, the Trump stuff that says this portion of the population is superior to that part of the population, and civic nationalism, which mm-hmm. says, you know, which includes everybody in the country and all citizens, and yeah. and um, it's about defending democracy. It's about and, defending and the, the community we've created together. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Ukrainians really feel that now, mm-hmm. and. You know, so I do think they're ready to sacrifice. If the West really supports them to the hill and Putin fails in Ukraine, I think the threat of nuclear war is going to be reduced. Mm. Putin is not totally crazy. He doesn't want to die himself. And he doesn't want to see all his palaces blown up. And I don't think as a kind of measure of desperation that he's going to like launch the nuclear arsenal against the United States mm. or, or Europe. We need to remember, though, there are different gradations of nuclear war. We always assume that everybody lets their nukes go at once and, you know, the whole world is blown up. Yeah. There's many there's, – there's ways to do this and use nuclear power in a way that's intimidating but doesn't end the world. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Russia is now building a, a nuclear power plant right near the border with Lithuania, a, na- a neighboring ally. What if they're just some accidental, in quotes, leaks from that plant and some, you know, what if they decide to have a nuclear test, an underground test, not far from the border of Estonia? What if they decide to actually move nuclear-capable missiles into, into neighboring countries where they aren't right now? And there is such a thing as limited nuclear war. It's mm-hmm. possible. And Putin is a master of dosage. He actually can, you know, ratchet up pressure very slowly. So the nuclear threat is there, but I'm, I'm, I absolutely guarantee you that the nuclear threat is going to be lower. We can minimize it if Putin fails in Ukraine. Yeah. If Putin fails in Ukraine, the United States doesn't have any warmongers as leaders. Even Trump, mm-hmm. who was you know, a pathetic excuse for a president and a disgrace to democracy and did so much to discredit democracy in America, even he just for reasons of personal vanity and self you know, surviving his own surviving surviving himself, wasn't a warmonger. He wasn't mm-hmm. threatening nuclear war with anybody. Although there were, of course, some reliable reports from the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the Chinese were worried that as a last resort, Trump might actually unleash nuclear missiles against China. Yeah. 
So our head of our Joint Chiefs of Staff- To preserve not, his presidency. To words. preserve his presidency, yeah. create this enormous- you know, And of course, Trump is so selfish that he, he might do that kind of thing. Yeah. So our- The scary thing is governments have done those sorts of things in the past. I mean, so all the conspiracy theories about false flags, which is just an operation where you- Pretend there's some threat and you have to unify your own people against this external threat. But it's never graduated to nuclear launches. Yes, that's true. And because when you do that, you know that they can retaliate. If it's China or Russia, they can retaliate. And so a healthy sense of self-preservation. What's the point of saving your presidency when we're all going to be dead? When we're all going to be dead, (laughs) right. And all your goals and... is rational enough for that. No, he gets to run again, yeah. and Jared's foot, you know, Jared Kushner's fortune continues to grow, and so he's got some reason to want to hang around. He's not going to launch a nuclear war. Putin, ultimately, unless he continues to go down this like crazy land approach he's been on over the last year, I think is unlikely to launch any nukes against the United States, but he could actually do, as I say, he could do this graduated nuclear threats. And at some point, there's going to be a showdown if he continues to do this. At some point, if he messes with NATO allies, the United States is going to have to counter since yeah. he had with the threat of nuclear war. He enjoys what's called escalation dominance. Yeah around Eastern Europe, which means that, that he, any escalation that those countries and NATO countries can do, he can, he can outdo just because their conventional forces on the land are so much greater and the geographical proximity is so much greater. So the United States needs to use the threat of nuclear weapons in order to keep new, Europe safe. That's been the case since NATO was formed. Yeah. In order to avoid that kind of showdown, we need to obviously, you know, contain Putin where he's at right now, that will be the best thing we could do. In other words, you, you meet intimidation with intimidation. You meet a high dominance dictator with a high dominance Democrat mm-hmm. who wants to preserve the peace in the world. Yeah. Do you think that's Biden? Do you think Biden's doing a good job? It remains to be seen. I think Biden has it in him. Mm-hmm. He's got Putin's number. Mm-hmm. Unlike a lot of Republicans who, you know, he's wax is eloquent at these. I, saw, I don't know if you saw his prayer pre- breakfast speech that he gave a couple of weeks ago. Um, you mean Biden's prayer breakfast? Biden's prayer breakfast speech where he, he says he's going through all the list of all these senators, Republican and Democrat, going way back, who comforted him when his kids died. And, mm-hmm. and he mentioned Mitch McConnell and said, oh, Mitch and I used to hang out and have lunch at this place. And, yeah. and, I wanna, and he turned to McConnell and said, I want to thank you, Mitch, for being my friend. You're a man of honor, and I and I really respect you. And consider, I, I count myself as fortunate to have you as a friend. Now, with that kind of attitude and that kind of talk, which you'd never hear from McConnell about Biden, yeah. what Biden is or doing Trump is, about anyone, <laughs> right? Exactly, except 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 for Putin, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it is one guy Trump never criticized, right? With that kind of attitude toward the Republicans, who Biden still can't wake up and realize are the enemies of democracy, right? Yeah. He has been, even though he he's a dyed-in-the-wool, small-D Democrat, he really believes in democracy, liberal democracy in the United States and elsewhere, he, he still has a hard time reckoning the, with the fact that, you know, his Republican, you know, buddies have become enemies of democracy in the United States. That he's not, he doesn't make that mistake with Putin because Putin never yeah. was a friend of his. He could. He, he doesn't seem to have the fire in the belly uh, to deal to carry out what would be the most radical sanctions. The question is whether he actually can organize the Europeans to get behind these sanctions. 
getting Germany behind and excluding Russia from the SWIFT system would be a great measure. Can he do that? Let's say this about Biden so far, though. He's done two, two or three things really right. It's made all the difference. First of all, he's really united the Western allies. Now, he still has to unite them around excluding Russia from this international payment system, you know, measures that would hurt them more than they hurt us, hurt our European allies more than it would hurt us. But when it comes to getting the Germans to agree to shutting down the Nord Stream pipeline before it even opens, when it comes to getting everybody on the same page, he's done an extraordinarily good job. There's no doubt about that. What's more, he's never entertained the thought of giving concessions. Putin has made these outrageous concessions. If you met them, they would all destroy the integrity and the meaning of the Western alliance. Biden has never entertained those those suggestions on Putin's part. They include also withdrawing all NATO forces from all NATO forces from countries that that are close to Russia. If he gave into that, NATO's credibility would be going. So he's resisted that and he's done another very smart thing, which is that he is leaking intel that we have about Russia's, you know, planned force uh, false flag operations mm-hmm. in advance. He and the United States and British intelligence are really really on this. And instead of our usual thing that we do with Republicans, which is earnestly fact check them and then, you know, correct their mistakes. And by the time we get done with our fact checking and see that what our eyes were telling us actually was true, they're under the next batch of lies. This Mm -hmm. is Putin and Trump. This time Biden's doing something different. He's weaponizing the truth. He's weaponizing the truth. He's saying, oh, we've, what's more, he's he's making Putin nervous because he's showing him, we have eyes and ears where you didn't know that we had them. Yeah. Revealing, for example, when British intelligence revealed the identity of the guy who Putin planned to put in place, this is about a month ago, as his puppet president of Ukraine, once they get rid of uh, Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, it turned out to be this total clown who nobody in Ukraine knows anything about. His party got 2% of the vote in the last election. He has no seat in parliament. And he's just this... He's not even a serious guy. What we revealed is... Was that guy part of the operation? Did he know he was going to be the tool? It's not the... even clear that he knew he was part of the operation. <laughs> he was and such a bozo that they, he didn't He's even such know a he bozo. Part. And here's how much of a bozo is when this word gets out, he says, check my Facebook post tomorrow. More news forthcoming. Nice. He's, he's on some little ego trip because he learned this, <laughs> and it showed how you deeply he's more important Putin, than he is. Yeah. That's right, and it showed how deeply Russian uh, police and Putin have to dig to find a single Ukrainian who's yeah. going to be willing to betray their country and be the equivalent of Marshal Patton, who was the kind of Hitler's guy in France yeah. during World War II. If you have to dig that low, it humiliates Putin. Advertising these false flag operations. And, for example, the Russians' most recent, I should say Putin's, because most Russians don't want this war, mm-hmm. most recent false flag operation, I don't know if you saw it, was going to be a film that showed the Ukrainians supposedly blowing up mm-hmm. a chlorine tank, a chlorine factory, in a way that would cause huge chemical damage and, and a lot of deaths in Ukraine. And supposedly the Ukrainians were going to do this to harm the Ukrainian people and continue their quote-unquote genocide, genocide against yeah. their own. Well, this is the stupidest thing anybody could ever imagine. But instead of just saying that now, what, the United, what, what U.S. intelligence did was they actually released how they knew that that was ridiculous. And it mm-hmm. turns out, Wayne, that that 
that tape of this chemical explosion going off, supposedly in Ukraine, was made in 2010. Yeah. And the soldiers in it weren't even Ukrainians or Russians. They were Finns. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It was, it, and they had to voice over a different, a, a different voice. It was, and they got this from sources that were on the, on the web. Yeah. And, when this, and when British and American intelligence revealed these things, we're showing what a clown Putin is in yeah. some ways. We're able to ridicule him. And, and when you start laughing at a dictator, his days yeah, are good. numbered. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've learned this from, have you heard of Odpor? Mm-hmm. In Yugoslavia, we've—I've actually been in correspondence with some of the folks who run there, the Center for Nonviolent Studies. I don't remember the center they started, uh-huh. but after they basically they took down the dictatorship of Milosevic. Yeah, so was this grassroots democratic movement in Yugoslavia to take on, you know, actually a very Putin-like dictator in Yugoslavia right. who had right. engaged in all these aggressive wars and and committed genocide in um, in Bosnia and Serbia, and and a lot of what they did was his humor. So yes. One of their best tactics was, <laughs> this is so funny, at, at a time where everyone was terrified to even disagree openly with Milosevic, because if right. you disagree, you end up in jail. You're going right. to go away for a long time. Um, they wanted to just inspire people to be more courageous and brave. And, and so they would set up in public places these mannequins that look like Milosevic with a baseball bat. They'd just say, <laughs> go ahead and take a, take a whale, to, you know, take a yes. crack at the guy. And people would do it and they'd laugh and, and then they'd get arrested for it. And, and 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 the public would see that as ridiculous too because it's like you can't even take a joke. I mean, come on. So I think you're right. There's something to humor. It's so weird how like humor is is a very complex psychological subject. And I've read a lot about the the the, the root of humor and what makes things funny. But I think a big part of it is just pointing out absurdity. That's right. right. So, and when effective humor is just pointing out absurdity, and and one of the ways you take down powerful people is point out when they're being absurd because then they lose credibility with everybody. And in many ways, that's the source of their power. Once you get people laughing at a dictator, it's a completely different game. Nobody has actually laughed at Putin so far. He's never been the kind of guy you could make memes out of other than memes that made him look really powerful. Bad, but powerful, right? And what you're seeing now are memes that are getting people laughing at Putin. And that is key to creating a sense of his his fallibility, yeah. of the fact that he can be taken down. He's a regular guy like everybody else who's driven by these egomaniacal things that drive so many of us. But he's, he's on steroids on that stuff. So I'll give you an example of a meme I saw a couple days ago that's mm. super effective. Of course, it didn't appear in Russian newspapers, but it was... It was, it's something Russians can access online earlier. In World War II, Soviet soldiers went into battle with the Nazis with the following war cry, for Stalin, for the motherland. All right, that was their battle cry that brought them all together. In this one, it showed a bunch of Russian soldiers on a field. There's a cartoon. And one is saying, for Putin's mistress's palaces. <laughs> and another soldier was saying, for uh, Kadyrov's four wives, and Kadyrov is, is Putin's sheriff in Chechnya, who's you know some billionaire crazy with, you know I don't know, you know forty four wives and four hundred mistresses. I, I like how it's not Putin's palaces; it's not even Putin's palaces. It's for Putin's mistresses' palaces. Right, right. <laughs> and there were and there were more. Which he apparently has had quite a few, right? Is he sure that? he sure has, and a lot of them end up with palaces, and one of them is the mother of at least one of his kids. Yeah. 
and she's got palaces and billions of dollars and you know so God, this imagine being putin's kid that's got to be such a weird life <laughs> it's a pretty comfortable one though wayne it's, sure very, it's very very comfortable. comfortable yeah yeah, yeah it is and um uh yeah but once people start laughing at that they see truths that otherwise they might suppress in their own minds or otherwise they might overlook or otherwise they might continue to view him as infallible yeah and in democracies, we're always making fun of our leaders. Yeah. I'm a little surprised that you say people haven't laughed at Putin in the past. Because you've been to Ukraine and Russia quite a bit, right? Is that yes. correct? And recently? Like in the last five years? Typically, Putin can be ridiculed, but it's always with, with some respect. Okay. It's like he's such – it's always about how what a badass he is. Hmm. But that's exactly the reputation yeah. he wants to cultivate. Yeah. When you start laughing yeah, at – joking Pu- about how tough he is is almost – good for him because it just exactly exactly that image of being the hyper masculine strong man which is exactly what he wants and we shouldn't even use the term strong man to refer to putin or any other dictator they're not strong men Mm -hmm. they're weak men that's what they want to be called Mm -hmm. we shouldn't call trump a strong man trump is a very weak man that's what leads to somebody to behave the way he does and they love to be called that So, yeah, once people, once he starts looking ridiculous, mm-hmm. ridiculousness encompass, encompasses incompetence, egomania, childishness. Sure. Once we actually start ridiculing people for that, they, their, their stock tumbles very quickly. Yeah. In the Soviet Union, when uh, Leonid Brezhnev, who was the last long-serving Soviet leader, was in power, he was taken reasonably seriously. He was a decent administrator, I guess, by Soviet standards. But as he got older and then he had a stroke, it just he became a symbol of the decrepitude of the Soviet regime because rather than just replace him, they just kind of kept him alive. Literally, he had cronies holding him up at his speeches so he could keep speaking because he had a stroke. He shouldn't have been president anymore. And that and then you got a massive bunch of jokes about Brezhnev and at that point people started seeing the regime itself as kind of silly incapable of renewing even its own leadership Ronald Reagan when when uh Konstantin Chernyenko died the guy that that preceded um that preceded Gorbachev you know this was the third Soviet leader to die in as many years and Reagan was asked if he thought he could deal with the Russians and he said you know I absolutely am confident I can, but I'm not sure who I'm going to deal with because they keep dying on me. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, makes the regime look ridiculous yeah. as opposed to just badass and yeah. ill-intentioned. What, when you've talked to folks in Russia and Ukraine, what is your sense of what – I mean, obviously, the sample of people you're talking to is probably going to be more cosmopolitan than the average Russian. But do you get the sense that there's any decline in trust I mean, what have been your experiences when you talk to people in Russia about Putin? I think trust in Putin is still pretty high among maybe half the population. Half the population. Older people in particular who remember the economic disasters and the humiliations of the Gorbachev period and then the Yeltsin period. And, you know, between like 1988 and, and 2000 or so when Russia was very poorly governed and just basically overcoming the traumas of the dissolution of the Stalinist economic model in the Soviet Union itself. He also has this reservoir of goodwill among people as the guy who, you know, made us believe in ourselves again, got us over the, you know, the 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 um, abasement that we felt about ourselves and our humiliation. So he has a lot of support that's still based on that. 
But over time, that's declining. And over time, you get a new generation now that never lived through the 1990s. They didn't know how bad things were. To a lot of people in their 20s now, in their teens, he's just this funky old man that probably should have left a long time ago. And what's more, if he's been the guy who raises Russia's profile in the world, but as time goes on, it becomes clear he's making Russia a vassal of China Mm -hmm. because he's just disconnecting it from the West entirely or he's undermining the Russian economy. That belief in his ability to be the great custodian of Russia, who's always got Russia's national interests in mind, is going to start fading as well. Mm -hmm. And by vassal of China, just you mean... Basically, subservience. Dependent on China, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they have a very close alliance right now, which benefits Putin and benefits uh, at least the way Xi Jinping, the dictator of China, calculates it, helps China. But Russia historically has always balanced off between East and West. It's never just thrown its lot in with China and against the whole rest of the world. When you do that, and when China's actually going to help you pay your bills Mm -hmm. that are arising as as a result of your completely bizarre, unnecessary action in invading another country, that's going to make Putin so politically and economically dependent on China Mm -hmm. that he could be dragging Russia into a situation that he himself has said he wanted to get Russia out of, which is dependence on other countries, loss of its sovereignty. Yeah. And one thing about Russian culture is that it's, again, I, I don't know it very well, except through literature and history books, but I've read a lot of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And just the pride and passion of all the characters in yeah. those novels. I mean, this, this is sort of novel that, you know, someone looks at you the wrong way in a bar, you smash your bottle on the table <laughs> and you attack them and stab right. them, you know? And that's right. something that it's just, it seems like it's such a huge part of at least public perceptions of Russian culture. Whether that's the actual reality, I don't know. I've never been to Russia and I don't, I know some Russian immigrants, but I've, I, I, I've never been to the right. country. I don't. Um, so what is it, I mean, what do you think Americans should know about Russian culture? you know, that will help us be more thoughtful in assessing what we think about what our country should be doing in response to this. I think we should realize that... When was the first time you went to Russia, by the way? You I went to 1980s? Russia in 1985 right. as a so tourist. before the Berlin Wall fall, this is still the Soviet Union. It wasn't Soviet Union. Gorbachev had just come to power a few years before. It was still the Soviet Union, of course. Yeah. And I went there as a tourist on this cut rate. I was a student at the time. It's huh. cut rate tour. We stayed at these awful hotels. And my then girlfriend and I went and we just traipsed through Russia a little bit huh. and came home. And on that trip, I saw well, so things. Did you get a visa back then? I would have thought. Yeah, it was... a tourist visa was tourist no visa problem. Was easy? Okay. Sure. And the country was so odd. The way the economy worked was so bizarre that I just that sparked my interest in it because I wanted to figure this country out. Then, given the fact that my passion was always democratization and yeah. people fighting for their freedom, wait, tell me why? Why was then, it bizarre? Then I mean, really wanted it. Then I really wanted to study. What was Russia. bizarre about the economy that that you immediately saw as strange? Nothing seemed to make any sense. The (laughs) typical laws of supply and demand didn't work at all. And people went along with these bizarre lies about the way the economy worked. So let me give you an example. Um, I remember one day getting an ice cream in 1985 when when I was there as a tourist. And the ice cream shop, there's no profit motive. They don't care. But they, but they, um, they would spoon out the ice cream on a cone. And then they would weigh it to see if it weighed enough. And if it didn't weigh enough, they'd add a little more to the ice, you know, a little more ice cream to it. Mm-hmm. If it weighed too much, rather than take some of the ice, rather than just give you a little extra ice cream or take the 
you know, the remainder off and put it back in the ice cream barrel. They took it off and threw it in the sink. <laughs> I thought, it just somebody's got to figure that out. Yeah. You know, it's a combination of no profit motive, no concern for the customer, sure. but with this kind of strict adherence of some rule that yeah. there's supposed to be so many milligrams of ice cream or grams of ice cream. Yeah. What's more, I can remember there was a uh, a little bar restaurant that was advertised at the hotel I was staying at there that said on the seventh floor, they have this bar restaurant. It's open till 10 o'clock at night. I wanted to get some stuff. I went up there and the door was closed and locked and there was, there was clearly nothing there. Hmm. Just didn't exist. So I went back down to the desk and said, can you tell me where that moved or what's going on? Because there's nothing there. I, I can see some remnants of an old sign there, but it's closed, it's locked, it's become something else. And the person working the, the uh, counter at the hotel told me, pointed to the sign that said it's there and said, oh no, it's there because this sign says it's there. Hmm. Don't you see? She knew perfectly well that it's not there, but that was the pretense. That, that was, was the rule. There's yeah, no, you don't so worry about. She didn't have to believe her own bullshit. She didn't have to worry about a Yelp yeah. review. She didn't have yeah. to, you know, the whole thing, all that bizarre surreality you got in an economy where there's no consumer, you know, consumer demand and, and the profit motive don't work at all created a bizarre economy with incredible waste. Incredible why do, but waste. Why does she feel like she has to tell you this thing that you know and she knows and you know that she knows and she knows that you know is not true? There's like, a why does she feel. Would, would she get punished for telling you probably that no longer exists? Probably I mean, not harshly punished, but she, but would, she be would be saying she would be saying that this sign is a lie. Right. Yeah, huh. and that just probably wouldn't wouldn't sit well with her. Huh. Um, there's a word for what you just said in Russian. It's called vranyo. It's when and you you get into dictatorships, and it's a big deal in Russia. Yeah where people can't express themselves freely, where they can't, where even in, in, you know, relatively private public spaces, even in their apartments, they can't. And it's where you look at me and I look at you and each one of us knows that the other one is lying through his teeth. <laughs> and yet we both keep we nodding. <laughs> we both keep nodding. Yeah. We accept each other's stories knowing that it's total BS. That's funny. And then we go off. So there's a concept in Russia for there's this. There's a concept in Russia for this, yes. And that explains the Olympics. Because <laughs> well, I've always wondered about that. Because I was wondering, even the athletes. Like, I feel like if I were one of these athletes who was doping, you know, or even just Putin lying about fascism or lying about genocide in Ukraine, how do you not go home at night and think, damn, this kind of sucks? <laughs> like, I think I, some I people do, but if that's unsettled. the only world you know, then it's fine. Yeah, then you get doing, used to it. Everybody else is doing it. They're all they're all in on it, right? Yeah. And if you if you're not used to ever having a voice or being able to speak the truth or you feel yeah. like your communications are always monitored, you get used, used to, to that kind of a life. Sure. It's an adjustment yeah. mechanism. Yeah, that's one of the things that kind of scares me about the way the United States is going, because um, I feel like you know I. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about harmful speech. We should, in many cases, be concerned with harmful speech. And, and obviously, a lot of the things that we're doing about people who speak harmfully are not government repression. It's not like we're sending people off to Siberia or right. murdering them the way Putin is. But I do think it's kind of a slippery slope for us to go down that path. It once, sure is. Once we start saying, you have to say this and you have to believe this, even when you know you're bullshitting and everyone else knows you're bullshitting. Right. That's kind of a dangerous territory because that happened in China too during the Cultural Revolution. My family, I told you my family fled in 1949. Well, half the family was stuck behind and, and they had to do things like denounce their family members who left and everyone knew they were bullshitting. I mean, it's like, this is my older brother. I'm not going to 
said he's a traitor and a right. criminal. But you just said these things and it created this entire culture of, of bullshit, which right. caused mass starvation because people would bullshit about how much food they're producing. That's they right. Knew, hey, I'm bullshitting about whether I hate my brother and I know I can't produce this amount of food, but they're expecting me to produce it. So I'm just going to bullshit and say, yes, we will, you know, produce, you know, 10 tons of grain this year and we have produced it even if we haven't and then right. you have mass starvation and most people don't know this but in the great leap forward in the cultural revolution probably more people died from avoidable suffering and violence at any point in human history right all because right. of bullshit people were just speaking bullshit right. to each other all the time so I, this is a huge danger and i can tell you somebody in the you know as a professor at uc berkeley mm -hmm. that the notion that universities are becoming the graveyards of First Amendment rights and the graveyards of common sense yeah. is true. Yeah. I have to say this, and I'm, a, and I'm a progressive, yeah. but using the wrong word, yeah. using the wrong expression, and they change all the time in terms of what's acceptable, can actually you know, make you the object of an attack. Yeah. And then people will ostracize you rather than just siding with what they know to be right because they're afraid of being attacked too. That's just the way Stalinism and Maoism yeah. worked, right? Yeah. Like you said, we're not sending, you know, people who use incorrect speech, quote unquote, to the gulag, but it does silence voices. What's more, here's a crucial thing. It prevents us from being able to laugh at ourselves and yeah. each other and Which each other. Yeah. And if we can't do that, something very serious is lost. We can't make the same comment on the human condition. Humor is not always sweet and nice. Mm -hmm. What's more, I find that you know many students, and this is a fairly recent thing, really only over since 2014, 2015 perhaps, regard anything that, is, that upsets them yeah. as a crime. Mm -hmm. So if I discuss a topic that's sensitive that's you know where a lot of people suffer some students will leave the class it, it bothers them too much wow. if i show if i show like they'll physically get up and leave the class they will wow. or they will complain about it okay and they were they've been honestly they, we're training students to be traumatized mm -hmm. and you know this is happening in high school yeah. and through universities now, in the th when the threshold of what counts as making someone uncomfortable is simply discussing ideas they don't agree with mm -hmm. or using language that isn't you know, the language that they would use for it, that really chills public discussion. It prevents us from being able to sit back and make fun of our own excesses, yeah. sit back and make fun of our own um, – of, of the other guys as well. Yeah. We lose that weapon of humor. And because we're all taking ourselves so seriously, we're on edge that we're going to use the wrong word that's going to you know, lead to ostracization or even the endangering of our jobs, then we're in trouble. And I do think we've gone too far down that path. Yeah, and I think the, the kind of the, the way we've turned every bad thought or bad word into an emergency is that's what distracted us from situations like Ukraine. Absolutely. Like, so one of the things I, I've been stunned by, just the media coverage of Ukraine is that until the war actually happened, how little there was out there. And this is right. one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you, because I felt like right. I was actually very interested and desperate for more real analysis, like real understanding of this situation. What are what are the pros and cons of various approaches? What is the cause of all this? And what are the ramifications for us? Could we face nuclear war? Should we, I mean, we're on the West Coast here. You know, I imagine oh, they Russia can, has They can hit us pretty easily. Yeah, yeah I'm sure there are 
and you probably no know this more than I do, but, but I'm guessing there are submarines in the Pacific Ocean sure, sure. controlled by Russia that could send a nuclear warhead Absolutely. to where we're sitting right now and just right. annihilate everybody. Right. And instead, we're talking about Joe Rogan and Kanye <laughs> and what stupid things they've done on Instagram. Exactly. And it's just, yeah, I, I almost think that there's partly because the, the younger generation, I don't want to say it's just the younger generation because I know there are a lot of older folks who are caught up in these social media disputes. And too. the older folks are the ones who are training them. Yeah. It's people like professors here and, yeah. and high school teachers that are training these students. People don't grow up with the kind of sensitivity that would, would lead them to be traumatized or rendered yeah. uncomfortable by the expression of an opinion that they don't agree with. Yeah. We're the ones who are training them to be traumatized. And you can train people to do that. I, I, sure. I, um, I'm just I'm writing a piece about this guy Joseph Wolpe. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's the he was a South African psychiatrist who, um, back in the World War II era, actually when people were suffering from PTSD, did the old school thinking on trauma and anxiety and stress was like Freudian psychoanalysis that when someone's experiencing some sort of fear, there's some deep seated unconscious bias that we just have to reveal and right. like unpack it and once we release it and they understand oh this is just about my sexual frustrations or my desire for status and right then the fear goes away was replaced by this new theory which is it's it's actually not that complicated it's just it's just conditioning right you know that right the problem with fear is that for sure someone has a negative interaction with some stimulus but that exaggerated amplification that continues for lifetime so you know Wartime is a great example of this. You hear a loud noise, it leads to your friend right next to you dying. And you don't realize every time I hear a loud noise, it doesn't mean my friend's about to die. Right. So you have this kind of generalization from this one bad experience to everything in the world. Um, that what you have to do is actually expose people more to those experiences. Exactly. That, that you know, exposure therapy, incremental exposure and, and desensitization to the stimulus is actually what therapeutically works best. Right. And we've kind of been doing the opposite, which is not just bad for the world because it creates more conflict, lack of understanding, and because when we're so sensitive to these things, it distracts us from things that really are dangerous and really are important. But it's bad for the individual, too. It certainly is. living in a trap where you're constantly feeling afraid isn't good for any of us. That's so. absolutely right. And I think in your point touches on a broader one that I wanted, yeah. that I wanted to discuss briefly, if we may, which is on why so many people in the United States now, among progressives, and in Western Europe as well, among progressives, are very hesitant to want to defend Ukraine right now. They're hesitant to get involved in international affairs at all. One of the reasons is, is that they are in the habit, I'd say we are in the habit, I'm a progressive too, of emphasizing pretty much just the bad stuff about our own society, of, mm-hmm. is treating the United States as hopelessly sullied by racism and sexism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. We do face challenges in those areas, but what liberals oftentimes fail to do is we fail to celebrate our successes and yeah. compare them to what's going on in autocracies. You know, everything progressives hold dear rights for all groups, for sexual minorities, for ethnic minorities, for women, are all in danger in autocracies. Autocracies don't do well on those things, as we know. And we have would-be autocrats like Trump as president. We see what that looks like here. And so we progressives seem to oftentimes think that celebrating our victories, celebrating the fact that we had two female senators 20 years ago, now we have 27, celebrating the fact that if you look at Biden's cabinet, it looks like a 
the world. It's a total rainbow. A third or 40% of the members are women. And saying, wow, look at this great thing we've done, celebrating the fact that, that we have gay marriage. And, and so do other democracies, Taiwan, mm-hmm. South Africa. These are, these are traditional societies, relatively speaking, compared to ours, have those things. Yeah. We're not able to see in our own minds the huge moral difference between autocracies and democracies. Autocracy and, and, democracies. Yeah. and I think part of the reason we don't celebrate these these. This progress is we're afraid it will induce complacency Mm -hmm. or it won't show enough sympathy to the people who still suffer, who still have problems. The problem is when you don't celebrate your victories, you don't realize yourself how well you're doing. Mm -hmm. You don't realize what the real tasks ahead are. And you end up lacking the self-assurance to stand up for good causes Mm -hmm. when your country happens to be on the right side of things right now. So oftentimes what I'll hear is, Okay, well, okay, maybe Ukraine's being attacked, but look at all the stuff we've done. Mm-hmm. Well, we have done some awful stuff historically, but that isn't, and we still have, we do awful things, awful things happen in our society today, but look at the progress we've made. Yeah. And when you never report your own progress or celebrate it, you always look like a loser. It doesn't yeah. matter how much you put, how much time you put into, you know, promoting gender inequality, you just assume that. We're bad. If you compare us to other countries, we're really good on that. And some problems we have solved. We have we have solved problems. We now know that female candidates in elections, based on the best data generated by feminist scholars, female candidates in elections in the United States do not face disadvantages. Mm-hmm. In fact, the biggest is in terms of the way they're treated by the media, the prospects for winning – all those things, but most Americans, due to our liberal lack of ability to celebrate our progress, still think that female candidates do face much higher can much higher barriers to winning the male candidates hmm. do. With these scholars, this is recent research. I recent I research, yes, it's okay. a, over recent years. There are a couple new books on this okay. that are really, really good stuff, and they're not written by conservative authors. Yeah, they're, and what they found is the biggest obstacle to having a Senate that's 50% women or to full gender parity in politics is that women don't run as often for office. Once they get in, they have as good a chance as a man. Mm-hmm. They don't run for office. And one of the reasons they don't run for office is because they think they're going to face all these obstacles yeah. that, that men face. So a completely well-intentioned movement, you know, which is driven by the desire for, for gender equality, by failing to step back and recognize the progress it's made, ends up having the opposite effect of what we want, yeah. which is it's keeping women out of politics. This is an example where very well-intentioned progressive ideas and scholarship is slowing us down on the goals that we say we cherish more than any other. Yeah. And this is this concept that you've, I think you coined this term, progressive patriotism, right? Mm-hmm. We have to be patriotic about the progressive values that we've upheld and that we've succeeded on. And and I actually agree with you on that, partly because I've, I've been very influenced by both social movement scholars and activists, whether it's like Evan Wilson and the gay marriage movement or Martin Luther King Jr. and fighting Jim Crow, and that you have to have a positive vision, right? You have to right. be inspiring people, not just being gloom and doom and saying exactly. how bad things are. Because honestly, any of us who've had experience on a team of any sort, whether it's a sports team or an academic team or you're co-authoring papers with a bunch right. of people, if there's somebody who's constantly saying, we suck, this sucks, you suck, it's just exactly. you can't motivate people to do anything. You're just all stuck. That's in, so true. <laughs> and it, Yeah, it's stuck in neutral at worst. Sometimes you're in reverse because everyone's right. just so mad. But here's 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 the where I'd push back a little bit. And this is a point Tom Nahasi Coates has made. 
accompanying progressive patriotism, there has to be transparency and honesty about the mistakes we've made in the past. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and in this context, specifically in the context of Ukraine, I think one of the reasons Americans are so unwilling to believe that we have to intervene in Ukraine is because of Iraq. 100%. There's no doubt about and that. And I still don't think there's been no a good doubt. reckoning of what happened with West, weapons of mass destruction totally in 2003. Agree. Totally and this agree. Is, this is one of the reasons Glenn Greenwald has been you know, on Fox News every night saying to people, don't you remember Iraq? Don't you remember you know, Afghanistan and these quagmires and the lack of transparency? And even like the New York Times has done this amazing investigative reporting about war crimes that were committed in Afghanistan and how the military was covering them up. And, and you know, that, that poor guy who was working for a nonprofit in the United States with his kids, you know, and he, he, they, they said this is someone who's going to bomb an American military installation. He was going to kill all these American soldiers and civilians. And it took the New York Times coming in to say, no, this is just a guy and his kids. So like, I, I mean, think I think, you, I think you're onto something very okay. important. Here. So how do we get there? I mean, how do we? What? Because I I agree with you that it'd be wonderful to be more progressively patriotic, but I also think even our system. I mean, I'm not comparing us to Putin or Xi Jinping, but even our system, it it seems to be the case that power is not very accountable or transparent. Well, it's a lot more a lot more transparent and accountable than it is in a dictatorship. For sure. And if we get Republican rule. Unified Republican rule, we're going to find that out. If we get, you know, rule of the international system by Putin and Xi and the other autocracies, we're going to find that out. So we still have to appreciate what we've got. Sure. But I agree with you across the board. First of all, we have to continue to come to terms that with, with past accounts mm -hmm. and really understand, you know, the crimes of slavery and racism in this country. We need to remind ourselves, though, that's only possible in democracies. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen what the Republicans want to do with that. They want to ban discussion of these things in public schools. We certainly know the way Putin handles that kind of thing. You can't yeah. even have the discussion. So let's appreciate the fact that we have a system that makes that discussion possible and all the progress that attends it possible. Yeah. I completely agree with you on Iraq. Even the Vietnam War was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. It was launched for you know, ostensibly decent reasons yeah. which were fighting the Soviet menace and it was a total disaster yeah. and the big mistake there was when we started seeing they weren't they didn't Vietnamese didn't want it is we doubled down that's a mistake John Kennedy would not have made had he survived but after Lyndon Johnson came to power he just decided we can't afford to lose a war anywhere yeah. and so he doubled down and that led to more deaths on both sides and a total mess that was a while ago. Iraq was such an egregious case mm -hmm. of the United States and its big partner, Great Britain, in, in the Iraq war, using, using manufactured facts, lies, to justify an invasion of a country that, you know, the consequences of which were upsetting yeah. the whole balance of power in the Middle East, you know, Hundreds two, of thousands of dead hundreds people. Hundreds of 600, in Iraq. 600,000 yeah. dead Iraqis. Yeah. And so yeah. every time we think about foreign, and I encounter this all the time in my conversation, so I'm really glad you brought it up. Yeah. Here's the thing. We're not doing Iraq anymore. And the idea that if we, if we embrace a progressive patriotism and view ourselves as on one side and we emphasize the unity of all Americans and the glory of our country, Glorious above all because it's so diverse. Glorious above all because this is a place where women can make their way to power. Glorious above all because it does defend an international system when you don't have the likes of Bush and you know George yeah. W. Bush in power that is based on international norms of non-intervention. You know, in that case, then given the way things are right now and that great moral clarification I talked about right now, 
you do need you do need some patriotism. You need some self-assurance. And I think part of the problem is Iraq has left, at least progressives, so demoralized and so sure that anything the United States does in the world mm-hmm. is going to ultimately be harmful to the world, that even when we're facing a conflict yeah. where we're not going to send any troops, we've mm-hmm. said that about Ukraine, we're just going to aid this one side against yeah. a bad side, you still get all this skepticism that, about yeah. whether we can even use the you know the power we've got yeah. productively. Like taking away the SWIFT accounts, that sort of thing. It's, yeah, it yeah. It's too much. We're going to, yeah. It's, yeah. It seems like we're meddling in other countries' affairs. But let's return to the mentality of, you know, 1940. You know, I mean, the United States still had terrible racial discrimination in the South. Uh, we had problems the likes of which we've, com- we've solved by now to some extent or, or at least made great improvements on. And Hitler comes along. And Tojo comes along. And the mm-hmm. Japanese dictatorship comes along. We didn't not fight back against them and intervene to save Europe just because we're just because up. we're messed up too <laughs> yeah. right that it's a good thing we didn't it's a good thing we got over how messed up we were yeah. and it's true you can find all kinds of awful things that Churchill did and yeah, yeah. relations with India or that even Roosevelt did when he was in power but you know there's better and worse yeah. there are emergency situations non-emergency situations and i want to add to that by saying one of the reasons we lose elections by we i mean democrats mm-hmm. l- large d and small d democrats is especially since iraq really starting with vietnam but especially since iraq we have abandoned nationalism mm-hmm. we've decided nationalism trump calls himself a nationalist yeah. we don't even challenge it trump is an anti-nationalist mm-hmm. trump o- trump only wants the nation to include about you know, half or two-thirds of its population, that's an anti-nationalist. That's ethno-nationalism. A civic nationalism or pro-democratic nationalism encompasses everybody. It encourages national unity on the basis of diversity, right? And by leaving the flag on the ground, even after the Republicans dropped it with Trump's fealty to Putin and, and treason against the United States, Somebody else is going to pick it up. In Mm -hmm. any country, every comparative political scientist like me knows that the party and the leaders who carry the flag, who people think are more patriotic than the other ones, always have an immense electoral advantage. The Democrats have become so uncomfortable with nationalism, so uncomfortable with even healthy forms of nationalism, that they've left the flag in the hands of people who are destroying American values, our way of life, and are trying to sell the country out to Vladimir Putin. That doesn't work. We've got to take the flag back on our own terms and associate the flag once again with the glory of our diversity, yeah. with the glory of our uh, you know, ability to be a force for good in the world, with the glory of our most sacred tradition, which is democracy. Yeah. If we neglect the flag, the other guys are going to get it. Yeah. Anyone who's been to a, a Warriors game will understand the power of team mentality and, and, and pride in your team <laughs> your t- and your team mind might have screwed up and it yeah. had some members who did yeah. awful things or said awful things that doesn't yeah. mean you don't root for your team so i guess the question for me is i mean there's a big difference between the nba and a warriors game and, and foreign policy and, and, and global politics uh, and we've taken a lot of time so I, i'm going to give you a chance to, to conclude with a couple final questions but why why do you think nationalism is the right approach rather than cosmopolitan pride in other words what's what's wrong with a, an approach that is just as proud and just as inspirational and positive that focuses not on nation but on global citizenship 
Is, or am I not drawing the right distinction? No, it's, I think it's a great question, and I think this is what liberals face all the time. Yeah. And, you know, Europeans who decided they wanted – they felt more European than Italian or French, yeah, they were game for selling their country's sovereignty to the EU. Mm-hmm. The fact is is that, you know, international citizenship is still pretty elusive, okay? Um, usually – you know what? So what's the what's the address of the world community? We're all divided into nations, and are the nations we live in still actually are the kind of the largest political units that we can identify with and feel some some comfort with? There's nothing wrong with being an American exceptionalist who emphasizes all the great things that our country's given to the world, and even our superiority as the founder of world, you know, modern world democracy, the site of all this wonderful progress we've made from women to LGBT rights to everything else, and pointed out the times when we were great in the world. There's no conflict between that and continuing to unearth the injustices in our own system, mm-hmm. in our past as well. You can do both. In fact, a good patriot does both, mm-hmm. all right? Here's the reason why you can't have – the cosmopolitanism is fine, and many elites regard themselves more as citizens of the world than we do of, our, of the countries we're in. But most people don't, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, I don't think that's going to change. It's really hard to generate the kind of solidarity that's required for, for sacrifice, yeah. for paying our taxes, mm-hmm. for joining together against social ills on a global scale. You can do it on a national scale, and doing it on a national scale and being a, 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 a nationalist in the good sense, in the sense of patriotism I'm talking about, does not mean you can't be a cosmopolitan too. Okay. What it does mean, though, is that cosmopolitan elites who regard themselves more as citizens of the world than, than, uh, than as citizens of the countries are always going to be a small minority, mm-hmm. and the majority senses that. And that's part of the rebellion, yeah. right? In Europe and here is against these cosmopolitan elites who don't seem to have any concern for their own country's interests or their own country's culture. They speak five languages and they feel like Europeans instead of Poles. And the right wing is taking big time advantage of that right yeah. now. And there's yeah, no. seeing this around the world in India and, and, and Japan and so many different countries. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're making mostly a strategic point. Like in the best of all worlds, maybe we would all be global citizens and cosmopolitan, but the reality is of the human condition the way it is, appealing to some extent our, our own unique contribution to the world and being proud about that as a nation is important for actually just making progress. Exactly. That's precisely what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. So in your best world, we would be global citizens. You just don't think that's necessarily possible and feasible. Right. Okay. That's fair. Okay. I guess my last question for you is then, you know, what do you think that people, individuals just listen to this podcast can do to make for a better outcome? I mean, should they, should they be writing to their legislator? Should they be reading or, 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 or kind of educating them about certain themselves about certain subjects? What can we do as a nation to make sure we're as well equipped to actually handle the crises that could unfold over the next few months, given that you know, I'm not sure exactly how likely, but a nuclear war, the end of <laughs> humanity could be a result of this we if we sh- make the wrong decisions. Yeah, we should be hammering our representatives with calls and letters. One thing we know now is that one of the reasons that the right wing is winning is their civil society is more active than ours. Yeah. 
Congress people get a lot more calls and letters from conservatives than they do from liberals. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson goes on Fox News and he does his show and he says we should be on Russia's side. And Congress people in blue and red districts alike and senators from blue and red states alike get a wave of calls saying, yeah, Tucker said X and Y and Z and we should be on Putin's side. Liberals need to do and progressives and real conservatives, not the radicals who've taken over the party, need to be hammering their representatives too. Mm -hmm. Getting out there and making the case for freedom. We also, I think, need to recognize the need for a real liberal patriotism. We need to embrace that and, you know, take back the flag from these conservatives. We need to actually get our self-assurance back too, above all else. We've got to view ourselves as potentially good forces in the world. I noticed my students, a lot of them, frankly, been taught that the United States has never done anything good in the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them can get through an education here without hearing anything from their professors about the United States other than what an exploitative, exploitative country it's been international and all the injustices here. Those are huge parts of our history. We should not turn our back on it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that the United States is capable of no good in the world keeps us from meeting these international crises like the ones we're in right now, and it empowers the other side. So we should be leaning our representatives. We should be joining demonstrations. It shouldn't just be a handful of ethnic ethnic Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. We should be getting involved in a big way, making clear to our representatives that we support these measures and that we are willing to sacrifice for them. What's more, though, we need leadership. Mm -hmm. Frankly, we need President Biden. Let's face it, by default, he's captain of the West. He's captain of the United States to go on in a special address and say, my fellow Americans, we now face a crisis, the likes of which we haven't in many decades. And this is going to cost us something. Here's why we need to do this. And here's why if our gas and oil prices go up, it's worth it. We need leaders. We don't have that right now. Yeah. Well, let's hope we get leaders that we need, because I think the crises are our nation and our planet are facing are, are pretty urgent. Not and, just- we, and we see some emerging. Mm-hmm. We see... Uh, Representative Gallego from from uh, Arizona. We see Eric Swellwell from California. Um, we see other representatives in the 30s and 40s very often who are coming up with, who are actually kind of doing what I think we should be doing, which is yeah. cultivating a sense of liberal patriotism that's going to work. I think this new generation of leaders is going to get that. They're growing up in a world that's not as safe as it used to be. Yeah. And there's real potential there. But with, you know, Joe Biden at 80 years old or 79 years old and Nancy Pelosi at 81, she's going to run for another term as speaker and and uh, Chuck Schumer's 80 years old. And, you know, clearly we need a little bit of new blood. Right. Yeah. So. yeah. And I think I think that new blood needs to have a positive vision, too. I think you're right about that. Absolutely. I, I actually didn't attribute this idea appropriately when I said tell Nazi Coates, this idea of progressive patriotism. I actually when I read this in some of what you wrote about it, it actually reminded me of what he's written about how the case for reparations so tom Hasse coates is most famous for this article in the atlantic in the book called the case for reparations how we should right be. but one of the points he makes is that reparations is is a patriotic thing because yes. we should have a positive view about this because it shows our nation's ability to reconcile with historical injustice in our willingness to help people who are vulnerable. And so we should take a positive attitude. And regardless of what you think about the specifics of that policy, I think the general idea that we should have a positive attitude about our country while also reckoning 
with these historical injustices, right. those two things have to come together. Absolutely. Great. That's well, the thanks key. so much. Any final thoughts you have before we close? Wayne, I, really I, think, you've, I think you've covered so awesome. much. I've loved the conversation with you. Yeah, so. I've learned so much about Ukraine that I didn't understand and about Putin personally because, you know, we just get such a, a tiny segment on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and even in the New York Times. I mean, you get a 500-word article. You don't really understand the situation. Right. So I thank you for helping me. My pleasure, Wayne. Of the situation. I've really enjoyed it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that podcast and conversation as much as I did. I want to thank Steve for coming on on very short notice and helping us understand a very complex subject. Priya Sohani edited this podcast, on, again, on very short notice. The team has been awesome. Crystal Heath, Shaloba Fakis, Julie Waldrop, Ronnie Rose, and a new team member, a new new volunteer who's given me some really good advice. Catherine has helped out as well. I won't use her last name because she hasn't. I haven't told her that I'm going to shout her out on this podcast. But finally, I want to thank all of you. Um, really appreciate all of you listening. Stay tuned. I know I've been talking about this community organizing project going to launch soon, but it should come out fairly shortly. And and including a new Reddit um, to form a little bit of community and ongoing conversation around this podcast. So thanks again to everyone. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend.